please join me in welcoming to the stage Naomi Sivens. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm here today to give you a talk called More Than a Filing Cabinet, Building a Flexible, Useful Research Repository. Amazing. Um, and uh, what that basically is is a story of how we built a repository at um, a company called Redbubble. And uh, it was on a shoestring. And what we learned along the way. So this is very much uh, a story of my experience. Uh, and the main things that I hope you take away from today, because it's, it's a whole journey we went on, uh, there's a few key learnings. And I'll come back to these throughout the slides. But the first one is about investing time listening to industry, learning from industry, which is funny, because it struck me, oh, that's right, I'm talking about this to people. Um, but that there is so much good research out there into repositories, so much good advice. The second one is, uh, Understanding the role of research in your organization and watching Steve talk yesterday about tensions, I think that is part of it, understanding what you're trying to address by building a repository. Third is being realistic about time and effort. Uh, and from that amazing presentation this morning, we know that, you know, of course we can't hire more researchers, God forbid. So what do you do with the re limited resources you have when you're trying to build a repository? Uh, fourth, when gathering content, start small, set limits. Um, and as a compulsive archiver and collector, that's really hard for me, so I wanted to share that one with you. And finally, being proud of your team's work. After all, that's what the repository is all about. It's about actually sharing and promoting your work. So that's some of the factors or the aspects that I think made our repository successful. Um, and I'll tell you the story of how we got there. So just a bit about myself. I was working at Redbubble up to a couple of months ago. It's cute, right? Thank you. I really struggle with visual things. I was like, what do I put? Do I put a photo of myself? And I'm like, well, I'll be standing on stage. This was a really hard slide for me. Um, so I was working at Redbubble as heading up their research team up to a couple of months ago. I'd been there for about five years, and it was a killer team, um, small, but kind of big at the same time, um, really talented researchers. And uh, I also do have a background, not in academia. I did a part-time PhD um, in virtual ethnography, so loved that talk yesterday as well. Uh, and I do love organizing and categorizing everything and anything. Um, I'm the person with a spreadsheet for the holiday with every day planned out. Yes, yes, very good. Um, so the three years of being locked at home is really hard for me, and I categorized other things instead. Um, but yeah, so it's not, not a surprise that I'm here today to talk to you about organizing research. And those are two of my hobbies. So on the left is, I was like, how do I talk about myself? I struggle with that. On the left is um, a toy I make lockdown, right? I learned to crochet, and I make toys for my kids. So if you've ever played the game Fez, that's Gomez from Fez. His name is not Fez. He wears a Fez. And on the right is my cat, who likes to sit in front of my computer and make it hard for me to work. So. Anyway, I'm actually here to talk about the research repository, so that's way more interesting to me. A quick rundown of what I'll be talking about today. Some definitions, which is really handy. And then uh, a bit about the red bubble story. So what's the context that led to our project? Planning and building, how we went about actually figuring out how do you build a repository? Um, the repository itself, hooray. And then a bit about launch and also impact. So definitions to start. 
So there are lots of great definitions out there that are really, really wordy and talk about, like, have lots of comma delimited lists of things, you know? It could inc include reports, this, 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 this. Anyway, this is, these are just my words, but it's that a research repository is a place for your research work to make it accessible to people who need it. Let's see if I remember this. And to, nope, and to promote research as broadly as possible. That last bit is typically not on the definitions out there. Like sometimes it's more just, you know, making research available. But having spent a few years in a business, like any other business, really interesting through the ebbs and flows, I wouldn't have built it if I thought we just need to store our research and make it accessible. It was about getting it out there. It's kind of the flip side of democratization. It's not about democratizing the methods. It's about, like Steve said, getting the insights out there. So there are four kinds of repositories. Um, and that's because research ops community of practice say that there's four kinds of repositories. There is a brilliant article. It's called Research Repositories, I kid you not. It's just called Research Repositories. But if you search on Medium, um, and there is a link here, you will find it, and they've done all the work. So I happily enough, I found this article early, and it helped so much. And they give these four definitions, four types. So there's the data repository. This stores the raw data, like interview notes, uh, transcripts, survey responses. You might have used Dovetail, one of today's sponsors, one of the conference sponsors. Uh, it's where you can store all your data across multiple projects and you can tag it. So this is just a screenshot. It's a really, it is a really good tool. I love it um, and I strongly recommend it. Then there's the Insights Hub. So if you think that data repositories are your raw data, they're good for doing your analysis on and you end up with insights. So the next step along, you've got an Insights Hub. You may have heard of like nuggetized insights and Tomer Sharon did this work at, Re at WeWork. So the idea is you have an answer and you go, and this is this Airtable example screenshot. I don't know if it really comes up well there, but you have an answer, you go to the insights repository and you find the answer to your question. This I think goes hand in hand with UX democratization as something to be super careful about, but that's a different discussion for a different day. Uh, the third one is a research register. And this is like a, a long list. Basically, the idea is you have a list of all of your research pieces of work. It's good for small teams because the maintenance is relatively low. Um, and it's good for small collections of work. So this can look like a spreadsheet. This was actually our audit spreadsheet, and I'll come back to it later. Um, but it'll have like links to the articles or the reports or whatever they are and some ways to filter it. So anybody can come and say, I'm looking for a report on this topic. And the fourth one is a research library. The idea is this is like a front door to all the research that anybody in the business can use. And they can be more formal, like think Dewey Decimal System style structure. And they can also be less formal. Uh, this is our repository, and I'll come back to this as well, but this is like, you can see it's on Confluence, so it's just a website. It's not a formal structure, but the idea is it's a front door in. So there's four types of repositories, and you could argue there's possibly more, but these I found are a really good structured way of thinking about it. Uh, so you wanna choose the right one if you're looking at building a repository. And coming back to that idea of, well, what is a repository? Which kind do you want? You start thinking about these other questions, which is when we say research work, you have that comma delimited list, you know, like your reports, your templates, your raw data. It's like those are very different types of work and they have different requirements. So what kind of work are you thinking of sharing? And who do you want to share it to? And what are their expectations, right? You have the PM 
who says, I want to see the evidence, I want to see the raw data that underpins that report. Shit. Um, and, then, and then, how are you going to promote? Like, what tool is actually going to do that well for your organization? And if you know your organization well, um, you kind of get that sense of what are people going to pay attention to and what are they not? Then there's really boring but important questions. Who's building it? Who's maintaining it? All the work? Um, and what tool are you using? So there's actually a lot to consider. So I looked at those four types of repositories and I'm like, oh, okay, right, what are we actually doing and why? And so my first learning, like I said at the start, is about learning from industry because if I had tried to think through this myself, I would still be stuck. And there are so many good case studies out there um, and good people talking about this. So by all means, start by investing that time and it'll help you avoid problems along the way. So I'll tell you a little bit about Redbubble. Really fast, Redbubble, if you don't know, they are based in Melbourne. It's a print-on-demand uh, marketplace. So you, like, you upload artwork and you can print it on a sticker or a t-shirt or something. Uh, so research at Redbubble was embedded in product. So we sat alongside design, PMs, reported up to the C CPO. And we also had researchers, therefore, embedded in product teams. And we also had relationships across the business, sometimes more ad hoc work and casual relationships, but a pretty strong network. And um, there was more to the business that we didn't necessarily have our, you know, our claws into quite as effectively. So uh, we were thinking about sharing more broadly. And then, you know, 2020 happened as well. So we lost half our team in 2020. There was a reorg a few months after the start of the pandemic. And we lost half the research team and a trickle effect. And then we also, uh, of course, lost more than just the research team. We lost a whole bunch of people across the organization. Lots of people. Um, and that meant we had a lot of new people, which is great. And it was really fun, except it meant that there were a lot of people who did not even necessarily know there was a research team, didn't know what we did. It was exciting days. And uh, we really shouldn't have been relying on the status quo, and we certainly couldn't anymore, because our status quo, uh, and this might be similar for your organization or might be really different, um, but it was a lot of personal connections, personal relationships, and also reputation as a result. So we had a killer reputation. We had great personal relationships. If you chop off half the business, you don't just lose half of that. You lose all of it. You know, there's no kind of equivalency. So that was a real shock to the system. So we did a lot of work to rebuild. And part of that rebuilding was we hired a couple of new researchers, and they were amazing. They were also new. Uh, and so we talked a lot about what was our plan for this new research team. We came up with a great strategic plan. And one of our goals was to make it easy for people to find the right insights to help them make the best decisions. Like, a little lofty, a little, you know, idealistic, but a really good North Star. And one of the ways to do this was, how do we get the research that's happened that people who are new to the business have no clue this work happened? How do we get more work shared? So a repository. So coming back to that question of how did we choose one of those four types, there were a few factors, right? One was the size of our research work. There had been a pretty strong team for quite a while, so there was a lot of work, a couple of hundred plus pieces of work, and that's just what I could find. And, um, and we also had a, a small team and no dedicated research ops. Everybody's embedded doing product work, project work. 
So this rules out the research register um, because we would have a small team and that's what that register is good for, but we would have a really long list. Um, and that is not really the most productive way. And anybody opening a spreadsheet with 250 lines and being told just filter to find what you're looking for, by the way, you're new and you don't know what you're looking for, would not have worked. Like I say, we had a lot of change. We had two new researchers, we lost researchers, we got researchers. We also had a, a lot of change at the C-suite level, which is a really interesting environment, and a lot of new starters. So that meant that we didn't want the data repository because we didn't also want to dump like years of raw data on people and go, there you go, now you can learn. We wanted to talk about stories a lot more. And we had a mess. This is probably the same for everybody here, right? So you understand, you've got research in only two or three, maybe four places, plus a person who left used Dropbox, and I realized that belatedly, and she was using her personal Dropbox account. This wasn't a researcher, but a designer who did great work, but she left, she used her personal Dropbox account, and all that work, gone. So we lost some tools along the way. Um, who remembers Mural? It was like the one before Miro, and right? So we had some new tools as well, which meant Nuggetizing is going to be impossible, right? Because we've got stuff scattered everywhere. So how are we going to find it? And how are we going to sort of standardize nuggets and create a new platform when we're all busy in product teams? And this is, this is the one I think is interesting as well when you think of the idea, let's make a platform that anybody can come with a question and they get the answer. They don't even need to speak to a researcher. It's like, how, how confident are you in the quality of that answer anyway? And how do you manage your nuggets over time? So. We went with the research library, not just because of process of elimination, but when I read those, those four definitions up front, I went, oh, that's what we want. We just want something beautiful that people can, well, beautiful, it's confluence, but something good that people can come to and they can go, I'm interested in, oh, look, I found it. You know, something really welcoming. So at this point, we kind of had figured out this is what we're doing, right? It's the reports, it's the stories, it's not the individual insights or data. And when we say, who are we sharing it with? Who needs it? It's basically anybody and everybody. We want anybody in the business to use it. The way that we wanted to promote research was about guiding and educating. Maybe in a few years it would be different, but with a whole bunch of new people, it's, uh, you know, education. And who's building and maintaining it? Of course, that was gonna be us. And the tool, I'll get to the tool that we chose. And this is what I mean about understanding the role of research in your organization. And like I say, listening to Steve, I would probably rephrase this now, but more like understanding the tensions that are impacting the role of research in your organization. So if you're going to invest this time and effort, what do you want to get out of it, really, strategically, not just let's share insights, um, and at the same time being realistic. How are you going to get that done? And don't start something you're not going to be able to finish, because I bet you there are like a million half-finished repositories in about... 26 finished repositories out there. So, um, so we knew up to what sort of platform we were building. We had a kind of picture in mind now. So we, we wrote a cute little promise to our users, kind of keeping us grounded. Uh, we want to make it easier for you to find value in what we create and for our work to have impact. And we believe our institutional knowledge should be shared widely and freely with no bottlenecks, silos, or gatekeepers. You've got to love the political language there, right? Because we did share this at Showcase with all of business. So anybody who goes, you research team, you should be democratizing because you're bottlenecks. We're like, no, no, we know. We know we're bottlenecks, silos, and gatekeepers. Uh, but we're addressing it our way as well. Um, 
we were not bottleneck silos or gatekeepers. The organization has challenges, any organization does. Teams will have knowledge, they will have to share it. These are always challenges. But we wanted to just take that sting out up front and say, there's no way we actually want to turn into something that we'd go, yeah, we were gatekeepers. And personal relationships, that lends itself to that exact model. If you know who to ask, it's fine. And if you don't, you're screwed. So planning and building. We were ready to start building, so we knew everything was easy to go from here. So I've got a little project plan that, um, happily enough, was four steps and four months, which we didn't have a deadline, but we did want to get it launched by the end of the year. I should say we started this in August, uh, August or September 2022, and we launched it in December, started in August. And our first phase, so our first step, was learning. Because, uh, of course, we're researchers, so we did our learning from industry um, and learning from our users. So we met with 19 people across the business, uh, including some of those parts that we worked with already, like data science and marketing and, of course, design and management, uh, but also teams that we didn't so much. Uh, supply chain, we hadn't quite gotten in there. They were mostly based in San Fran, and there was good work opportunities. So. So we met with people across the business, and those white heads there, they are the new people. We wanted to really make sure that we were hearing from the people who weren't already familiar with us, who didn't have those relationships. Um, so we had a mix of people who knew about research and people who didn't. So a mix of new people is the point, sorry. So we heard some some wonderful quotes, and I'm sure these will also sound familiar if you ask people in your organization how they find research. This is obviously client side, but I think the same is true in consulting and agency as well. You have the same problems about knowledge management. So a few themes and indicative quotes. I don't know how to go beyond searching and confluence other than asking someone. Some, yep, asking someone. And I wouldn't go to confluence. I know it's a struggle to find engineering material there. As it turns out, that's where all the engineering material was, so I was really worried when somebody was like, I don't even go there, and I thought, what are you doing to get the information to do your job? It got a bit scary. Uh, nobody thought that maybe the answer already existed. Have you heard this one? And this is like the really sad side, like we go, ugh, people are doing work and it's already been done. But you know what's really sad is when you meet that person, they're like, so we did this and we just didn't realize. And you think, well, I actually failed you. They didn't mess up at all. They did the work that obviously was needed because they had no way of finding the research. So that was a kick up the butt. Um, and relying on personal networks. I'm lazy and it's easier to message you on Slack. Yes, right, which is cool, except that's a bottleneck. And when you've got new people, they don't have any relationships. So this is its just a sh shocking way to run a business, I've learned. So we also heard some other sort of wish list items. There's subscribing to updates, which is a really nice idea. Like if I know I'm interested in a topic, can you tell me when there's new research on that topic? Um, having this be included in onboarding, so from day one, it would have been good if I had known. So if you build this, can you tell people from day one? Interpreting old content. This is a really good one. You know, what do I do if I find something that's old? Is it still good? Uh, linking through to data, that PM, who, who honest to God told me, like, I want to see the actual quotes. I'm like, well, geez, you know, fair enough. Like, it, 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 you want, we want them to be engaged and interested in listening to customers. How do you make that happen? Um, explaining research, you know. 
that, that same person who said I didn't realize. And also exec summaries don't make me read an entire report, just tell me up front a quick summary. We tried to meet as many of those as possible. You're really limited by the tool that you choose and the tools you can choose from, let us say, as well. So we came out with this future state user journey, so realizing not just our lofty goal there of you know, making everything accessible, uh, but what was actually going to work for our users. So this is step one, that they should be able to find the repository in the first place, and they should be able to search successfully if they know what they're looking for, or enjoy browsing if they don't. Um, they should be able to f open everything and read it. If we have an, a link, sh they should not have to ask permission. Uh, and step five, they should know who to contact for any follow-up questions. Uh, so my advice to you here, again, is interviewing far and wide. You want to hear from people not who know how to find research, even though you get good stuff from them as well, of course, but you want to find the people who don't have a clue how to find research. And it can be a bit challenging because it means you might be meeting with people in your organization who you should have been actually working with one way or another. They should have known. But this is a good way to say we want to fix that. We want to start building those bridges. So let's have an interview. Let's uh, hear from you. So the second step is an audit. So if you're going to build a repository, regardless of if you've already chosen the type, you need to know what you're putting in. It's easy to say reports, but then to get a sense of what sort of reports do we have over the years, over all the teams. Um, so step one is to find all the work and to build a bit of a spreadsheet. And this is real empathy here when you start looking for research in your business um, and you realize you can't find it even when it's work you've done yourself and you remember it and you go to your own list of files and you go, that was a shit list of files. Why did I think that would help anybody? So realizing how hard it is to find research in your own organization is a really critical step. Don't fob this one off and share it with your whole team to say, let's see if we can find our work. So this was our beautiful, beautiful audit. And I do love a good spreadsheet. This is actually a great spreadsheet. Um, but uh, mostly because of the work that's hidden. Um, anyway, we found all these reports, so like generative research, um, evaluative, you know, usability testing, user testing, concept testing, found as much as possible, chucked them all in this spreadsheet, and added these columns which are anything that we thought we might need to categorize it by at some point. So some things like date, author, team name, um, and of course things like topics. Uh, user type, that sort of thing. Um, and look, we were quite strategic in when we did the work. So this was, like I said, September-ish through to December, which means it's in the lead up to holiday period, which for Redbubble was its biggest sales period of the year, and that meant that there's a code freeze. So you can't change the website, which means there's a usability testing freeze as well, which means product teams start to sit around going, what, are we, what should we do next year? And they're not ready yet, for exploratory, sorry, exploratory research to happen. So the researchers tend to start to sit there going, what do we do now? So we picked this quiet time and started to search. And finding an hour here and there across the week, it was the right time to do that, because it does take a lot of time. And you don't want to skim over it and say, oh, well, I can't find that great piece of research I'm remembering. But you don't want to exhaust yourself. It's not fun work. I mean, it's fun in some ways, and it does help if you like spreadsheets, but you're doing a lot of copying and pasting, and that's brutal on the hands. Um, anyway, 
So we found all this work, and we did find old work. And um, I've had this chat with people now a bit, and we all go, how do you, how do you stop people from misusing old work, is the question. Um, and what do you do about it? And I have no good advice. I have no answer for you. There is no silver bullet here. Because when we talk about um, old content, the conversation is about this risk of misuse. People will find it, and they will use those insights for evil because they don't understand the context and they weren't around then. And we had all these new people, so there is this fear, like, are they going to go, but somebody then said this. But there is also a massive risk, and that's why we're doing the repository, right, is that you're going to lose knowledge. And we had had people walk out the door who had been specialists in a certain area, and we didn't know that was going to happen. And let's face it, with redundancies these days, you don't know when that's going to happen in your team. You might lose somebody who has been doing that work for the last year. So how do you balance that risk? For us, we were certainly leaning on we want to share. We don't want to lock anything down. And we had a couple of old timers on the team. And we were able to kind of look at the work and go, you know what, about four years, that seemed right. For your team, it could be six months, it could be 10 years, right? It has to do with your business and the changes that you've seen happen over the years, over that period. Uh, but four years was like, okay, that's a rule, a guideline. We still had three pieces in there that were more than four years old. But trying to set some kind of guideline, so you might not have it based on duration. You might say, you know what, anything that was about that product that we discontinued we don't need to read those learnings again. New people don't need to go that far back. Perhaps there might be some guideline like that. But the flip side is, we actually, I think maybe there are two pieces out of hundreds that we didn't publish, we didn't include in the repository. Um, also, side note, does your organization have a way to manage old knowledge? Because if you're the only team suddenly locking down access, you have to wonder what that's going to have, like what impact. Um, so we didn't have anyway, like there was stuff from 20 years, well, 15 years ago still on, on Confluence. So we didn't lock anything down, maybe two pieces we said, that's too risky. But these are some methods to try to control for, if they're going to find an old piece of research, what do you, what, what do you want them to know about it? So keeping it in context, making it easy for them to understand why did this research happen. So perhaps a link to the product brief should be part of how we always document. And you think that that should automatically whoops, be included or that should be obvious, but things move over time. So you want to be able to have everything in that report link off to the, to the things that are going to help them understand the context, if that makes sense. Um, and also who to ask for more information. If they find an old piece of research, they read it and they go, wow, I've got some questions. Who do they ask? The other piece of advice here, right, is about starting small and setting limits with your content. So every piece of content that you bring in, like a report or let's say a template, an interview script, each one has a slightly different taxonomy, right? It has a different way of organizing it and thinking about it, and it will have a different audience. There will be overlaps. That doesn't necessarily help. As soon as you have a different set of requirements, you have complexity, and you add another month onto your, uh, your repository project. You want this to sort of happen quickly. You want the good momentum. You want to get it live. So choose one. Obviously, for us, we chose reports. That made sense. Be strategic, though, because if you're perhaps being faced with democratization of research and you're trying to figure out how to do that nicely, you might want a templates repository first. You might. 
So what's going to get people using the repository is your question. For us, that was reports. And then over time, we could think about, hey, let's add in other, other types of um, you know, the material. Conversely, with that spreadsheet, you want to set limits, but you want to think a little bit bigger. So your taxonomy is going to be how you organize your content one way or another. And there is a great article, How to Build a Clean Taxonomy for your UX Repository by Marianne Carpentier. She published that in January, and we, we launched in December, and I wish she had published it in shit, August or September. It would have been so helpful for me, so please go read this before you do anything. Um, but also in the Research Repository article by the Research Ops Group, they, they went and studied a bunch of repositories and came back and said, these five, they have a whole list of them, but these, these were the five I kind of drew a line in the sand and went, Who's, who are being used by, which ones are used by more than sort of two thirds of repositories? And these are the five. So I started with these, but please just go look at the list because it's really good inspiration. So I started with these and some other ones. I didn't end up using all of these. So just because two thirds of repositories do doesn't mean yours have to, but it's, easier to hide a column in your spreadsheet and go, ah, this isn't helping me at all. I won't keep doing this. It's, I, don't, I didn't even end up in this point, but I wouldn't want to have to open up 250 files again at the end when I went, oh, do you know what? I should have included um, you know, the date of publication. That would have been a good idea because you don't want to just know. It takes enough time to get them in there. So you're better off having, funnily enough, more columns, more fields, get as much information about each, each piece of research, and then you can chuck them out later if you don't need them. Um, and I just wanted to share this, because as I went along, I had all these questions for myself, like rudimentary questions about what goes in a repository and why are we doing this? And so I kept a little table. I hope they're, yeah, that's pretty legible, isn't it? I think you should be able to read that because they're quite fun. These are some of the questions and that I had and I really encourage you to keep track of your decisions like this as you go. I was laughing at the time. Um, you know, should we prescribe specific documentation methods? Like, yes, obviously, what had we been doing for the last four years? But you don't want to come in and get really, really didactic about having these fields and this, you know, executive summary structure until you end up with the repository and you think nothing links to that product brief. You have to be lucky to have a research report that links to the product brief. Um, can it become a repository for data science as well? So similar, we got really excited. Like, why limit it to just our research? What about everywhere? Again, lots of content means lots of different requirements and complexity. So we were going to do that mid-2023 at least, according to me of the past. And what can we do about sharing survey data? Because we were asked this, and I was like, I'm not sharing survey data. You're going to be swamped. And then I thought, well, now, maybe we could. So I thought, I think we should have a page which links to all the surveys. It's like really idealistic. Then I went, no, this is going to be a crazy workload. So don't do that. Emphasis is on providing link to survey dashboard in any report from a survey. My point here is if you can keep track of all these decisions as you go, by the time you reach the end, you know what phase two is going to be, if you can get to that magical, mystical phase two. So then designing and building. So this is just, you know, pretty much design project at this point where you're going to build something, um, choose a tool, design the solution, build it, launch it. Uh, we, we found, uh, look, you know, an easiest platform is always going to be, an existing platform, sorry, is always going to be easiest for users because 
they have accounts already, right? They've already used it, they know how to use it. Um, and also because it's how they already work, so you could integrate your repository more into their ways of working. That being said, if you have budget, have fun. We had no budget, zero budget. Um, but there are some really cool, cool tools out there, and it could be really fun to explore. So if you have budget, have fun. Uh, for us, it was a really simple decision. Confluence or Google Drive. So when we looked into it, and again, thinking about the research library, we wanted that front door. So Confluence lets you do labels, which is like tagging. It is a website, right? So you can have page design and UX at, at work. Um, you, we also had our work there already because we were embedded in product teams, and product teams were using Confluence. Product teams were familiar with it, and so were we. We can't search Google Drive content, obviously, from Confluence, and also it does any search engine has this reputation. It's a bit flaky. That being said, for Drive, just about the only thing working in its favor was that people used it already. Um, besides that, you can't tag easily. You certainly can't search Confluence from inside Google Drive. Um, and you can't browse really well either. So it was going to be harder for us, and it was going to be harder for the users if we went with it. So pretty straightforward. We chose Confluence, which meant we were good to start designing you know, pages and information architecture. So what worked for us was to keep it shallow. And that meant that things were really visible. You know, it was fast to actually find anything on any topic. You didn't have to dig too far. So I'll show you our sort of simple taxonomy here around how we were structuring access to content. So it's pretty straightforward, right? We've got the home page. That's the landing page. That's the front door. We structured things by user type in the business. So there's customer research and there's artist research. And within that, we had a jobs to be done sort of experience framework. So about 10 jobs for each, uh, each user type. So we had a page for each job. And then we had these sort of other topics that kind of sat to the side, like maybe they didn't really fit neatly into only one, or they just didn't relate to customer user type at all. And the templates uh, actually were quite similar, and we'll have a look at those, but the, the page layouts were quite similar. And that meant that it was quite easy to, to move between this and not have a lot to learn. I'll do a little bit of a dive here about labels, because if you're thinking about Confluence, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, labels uh, are how, they, how you tag in Confluence. You can have more than one label per page. And Confluence has these cute little macros, these little boxes you put on a page, and you say, any page with this label, link to it here. So this is like recent pages, so you can sort it by you know, date of update. And we use these boxes throughout the repository to make sure the right content's being surfaced on the right page. So what this means is we were applying labels to pages already in Confluence. We weren't actually moving anything into the repository, which was a relief, because you don't actually want to have to move things around. That's just going to create additional work. So we left everything where it was, and we just went to those pages in our audit, and we copied our tags, and we dumped them there, copied and pasted, and that was it. The page was officially in the repository. No team was disrupted. So teams, a couple of times early on, were like, what are you about to do to us? You know, you're, you're going to take our work. But we were not. We were leaving it, but we were making it more accessible to anybody, not just their team. So there's three types of labels we had. And there's got to be some, if you're like into taxonomy and IA, there's probably cool terminology for this, but it's that they have slightly different functions. So there's 
a label for making sure that it's in the repository. So that means basically if you're on the home page, you can search and find it on the home page of the repository. So anything tagged with that label gets pulled into the all of repository search. Then there's a label for the user type. So if they're looking at customer research, and all the teams are structured like this, right? You were either customer or artist. So this made a lot of sense in the business to say, if you're looking for customer research, here it is. And if you want to search all customer research, this would be the label that pulled that in. And then there were the jobs and the topics. And these were like this third level. And we did have lots of other topic labels as well to help with search. But these were the ones that were dictating um, where content would be surfaced. So if you went to this page, you would see all the content for this job or for this topic. So pages had all three of these labels typically and a lot of other ones. But what this is all getting at is that you don't have to um, pick the right location. This isn't like an IA project where you go, every piece of content has to live in just one location. This is actually about no matter how they're browsing or navigating through the repository, they can find what they're looking for. So more tags, more labels make it easier. And then page design. I don't have any cool screenshots of our designs or anything, like our work in progress. Basically, we just you know worked with a designer, did some basic wireframes, learned about Confluence, and then we iterated forever because we found bugs on Confluence and cool things and other things. Um, so do invest a bit of time here. Uh, to really understand your tool and what it can do. We went back to our user wish list. We tried to integrate things, and we went, oh, you can't do that. I spent a lot of time talking to IT, digging through existing tags, things like that. But basically, we eventually built it. Hooray. And we had the repository. Now, look, I'm no longer working at Redbubble, so there's a limit to what I have available to me to share with you, which is unfortunate. But I've done the best with what I have, so bear with me here. There is the homepage. And the homepage layout is actually this very similar to all the other layouts on the page. And I wasn't sure how this would actually look on screen. It's tiny. Um, but that's OK. There were four basic sections of each page. We have the repository branding up the top. So this was a cute banner, um, little emoji. There was a, that purple box is the overview to this page, who to contact. So this was consistent across every single page in the repository. And by that, I mean those pages in that architecture, not the pages scattered around Confluence. When you get to those pages, like I say, we didn't move anything. We, didn't, we just added labels. But this is when you're in the repository. Then the main, main section of the page, right, getting access to content, so like searching, browsing. On the home page only, we had these FAQs. And these were not only about the repository. They were about everything, all those questions we had heard in those interviews. What is research? And at the bottom, we had our footer. And this actually linked to Dovetail, to uh, interview recordings, like our best of that we hosted every second Friday. And also, what's the other thing? Oh, our research toolkit, our how-to guides, and our templates. So these were accessible, but they weren't yet in the repository. They were just linked to. So if we zoom in a bit on the home page, you can see that we had the guided experience. This was more for new people. So it was a bit chattier. You know, what are you here for today? We had the search and browse in the center. This is pretty basic, more for people who know what they're looking for, perhaps. And then on the end, we had latest changes. And this is basically the same on those landing pages as well, customer, artist, jobs. It was the same. It, 
um, the search and browse, the latest changes. We didn't have that chatty panel on everyone, only on the home page. And for those landing pages, we also had lists of all the research on the home page. If we had done that, that list wouldn't have worked. But for those sub pages, it was more constrained, like only 30 or 40. And I just wanted to quickly touch on how we got Google Drive content in, because we wanted to include them in the search without having to copy and paste and duplicate everything into um, Confluence. And we didn't want people to have to go out and in and feel like instead they could stay in the, in the repository. So to do this, we had this page layout, which uh, we just templated. It was pretty easy. We had that who to contact for more information. We had um, an exec summary, which we just copied and pasted out of the deck. And then we had the deck embedded there using a plugin. That meant they didn't have to go out. They can actually page through the report here. Uh, it was manual effort, but there were only about 60 of these documents, and that's over four years. So it's like once a month, maybe, you'd end up having to make one of these pages. So we felt like that was a reasonable workload. Okay, launch and impact. Launching. We had a, both a soft and official launch, and we worked with uh, like advocates, champions. And I want to emphasize again that you want to be proud about your team's work. You want to be talking loudly about the repository, and you want to be shouting it from the rooftops. After all, that's why you're doing it, right? To encourage people to use it. So we had a soft launch where we asked friendlies. So this was not just people who knew research and who had we, we had worked with. This was also some of the new people that we had met in those interviews. So basically, anybody who knew this was coming, we asked them to start using it. And that was a few weeks or so, and we got feedback. There wasn't too much we had to change, um, just some terminology, and also some files weren't accessible. So it wasn't great. And we promoted, we talked about it at Showcase. Um, in September, we told them this is what's coming and when. And we actually met that timeline. In December, we launched it with a cute little motto. When you've got a question about artists and customers, the repository has the answer. And I know research isn't the only team that has the answer, but that was part of our longer-term plan, was to include other work. Then we had advocates in those teams that we hadn't worked with. We met with them, the advocates first, and then we met with the teams. And the advocates gave us some ideas on how we could actually make this more relevant for their teams. And so we were able to create a few extra pages or just really get those teams engaged and excited. And then we talked about it all the time, all the time on Slack. Um, also, because just because we launch in December doesn't mean the first time they use it will be in December. They might say, that sounds cool. When I need it, I'm sure I'll remember it. But we kept talking about it, so when they did need it, it was easy to access. And we didn't get to this yet, but they're working on onboarding this year, so that would have been part of it. Measuring success. Well, I can't tell you if it's successful, so that's a really easy part of my presentation. I don't know. Um, but we did have some ideas on how we were going to measure this. There are usage stats on Confluence. Um, we were going to check in with those new teams, talk to our team about the processes, like that Google Drive page, make sure it was working the way we had intended. Uh, and we had this idea about measuring the change in direct requests. So all of those personal relationship-based requests, do they change? Um, could be a bit subjective. And then 2023 happened. So a couple of months ago, I lost my job at Redbubble. We had a round of redundancies, as you do in 2023. It was super cool. We were pretty early. Uh, January 18th. I like dark humor, and that's how I cope. So, so I 
to be honest, like there was some stuff still to be sorted out with the repository for phase one. Um, and there was plenty that we were going to do for phase two this year. But uh, I'm not there and I can't do it. Um, but I haven't once thought like maybe I shouldn't have done this. Uh, which is a relief, because if nothing else, it's actually pulled out all of the research from the last four years and made it available. So we did achieve that. What we can't be sure of is um, maintenance. And this was, like, I didn't know I was going to lose my job. I did have a vague guess, like, maybe there will be redundancies because 2023. But I did not literally know. And it's, I think, very hard to do your job if you're planning to be made redundant. So I, don't, I forgive myself for that. But it does mean we did not have strong maintenance processes put in place yet. I had a couple of Confluence pages going, do this, add these labels, don't forget, whenever you publish. And we had chatted about it in the team, and they had worked on it with me. But uh, I can't say how it's going to be maintained, and I kind of know how it's going to be maintained in a cut-down team. We lost half of the researchers. Again, um, it happens. Uh, but at the very least, it's there. Um, and coming back to the whole point is that I am proud of all the work that we had done over the years. Uh, and it's there, and it's available. And that's the state at which I can leave it, you know? And I think that if we go down the path of worrying about, well, what if your team is made redundant, you will become paralyzed. You know, so instead of thinking, if we're made redundant, will the repository work? What if its democratization goes too far and there aren't any researchers? I would not be thinking like that, and I'm glad I didn't. Um, it's there and it's live. And I do have this awesome quote to end with, which is from somebody who's still there uh, in the customer success team. And she's new to the business, so she fits into that really scary group. And she says, Naomi, I used your research repository. Someone was asking if there was research on a certain type of user. I went to the repository and searched and found a relevant research summary in the first result. Amazing. There's Confluence search for you. Took only a few minutes and was very easy to navigate. Thank you for the work you put in making this resource. It's completely different than when I first joined and couldn't find anything. Always had to slack a researcher for help. So this is exactly the kind of change we wanted. This is exactly the kind of behavioral change and the ease of access that we wanted. So just to revisit those key takeaways, right? Invest time upfront in learning from industry. It will save you time and pain. Understanding the role of research in your organization, thinking about those tensions. Being realistic about time and effort. Gathering, when gathering content, start small. Go easy on yourself. Set limits. Make it achievable. And finally, ultimately, be proud of your team's work. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Miranda asked a question, but I actually think it was covered by the last section you were talking about, which was um, asking about um, fostering behavior change in the repository at the beginning there. I think you sort of covered that pretty nicely. It was, a, it was a question that was posted early. Um, I'm curious about that issue of old insights. Um, and the, the thing about research insights is that some of them can persist in terms of their relevance for a long time, and then others are constantly changing. And then an event like COVID comes along and some things that were pretty stable suddenly go out the window. Like, if you would, 
if you would do this again, are there elements of that that you might change? I know you had sort of a guideline in there around if it's four years old, then, then maybe we won't, or like, are, are, there, are there elements of that that you would do differently? No, no, for a few reasons. One is, like as soon as we do research, it's subject to misuse. So this kind of fear like people will find old research and then they will use it. It is, it'll happen. But you know, if you've ever seen your research be slightly misrepresented in a you know, exec level never. deck, right? Ne never happened. And you hear somebody go, all customers. You go, no, 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 I said shit. Um, so our research is going to be misused. And I mean, I say misused, but like it's going to happen. So, and I know that I love structure and I love, you know, rigidity. So it'd be super tempting for me to have gone, let's just take it away. That will solve it, as opposed to, let's make it accessible. And this is the one thing that I go, oh, bugger. Um, let's make it easy to talk to the person who did the work or the person who's inherited the work. And what happens when you lose all those people? And at that point, I feel like, well, that's, you can't, you can't control for catastrophe. So I would say, make it accessible. There are a couple of pieces I went, no, there's, there's and, and I also would recommend talking to leadership in your organization too about, is there stuff that legally, because we had some legal constraints and there were some things that you can't make that publicly available, on, like on repository, unless you say it's uh, private and confidence or something. So there are some legal constraints, but I think, and this isn't like, you need to just relax about your work, democratize it. It's more like you need to get your work out there. Um, and be proud of it and have those arguments when people misuse it or, you know, call people up on it or say, hey, I noticed you use my deck. Can we have a chat about it? Because I'd love to walk you through it in more detail. Yeah, I would go for share any day. Um, you, you went through your arguments for using Confluence, um, which, you know, are good solid reasons. I had a question around the portability of the repository. So if for some reason you needed to shift the organization decides that we're not going to use um, the Atlassian suite anymore, we're going to move to a different set of tools for whatever reason. How portable is the repository out Those of Confluence labels, in the first place? It all ran on labels. And right. it, labels are pretty simplistic in Confluence. There's no nesting, there's no hierarchy, everything is single, everything is single level. So you could conceivably take all, of, if you're migrating all those pages, you could conceivably reuse those labels in your new platform's way of categorizing content. You could also use those labels to choose what to migrate. Um, yeah, so I think, I think, funnily enough, the real simplistic approach of Confluence of just label it and it'll go to the right place would actually help with that, which is handy, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Please join me in thanking Naomi.